Welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown. Welcome back to the Petronas Podcast. It is Monday, August 28, 2023. This is episode 92 of the Petronas Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petronas and the host of the Petronas Podcast. And I am absolutely pumped uh, for this podcast. Um, I recorded a podcast on Friday with Dan Romito with Pickering Energy Advisors. And that is a podcast you are absolutely going to want to listen to. I'm going to drop it shortly after this one. I wanted to talk about the Fed and China and everything. But in that podcast, we go through, uh, we talk about ESG. And we he is great at interrupting me. He's great at pushing back. And he, it's a really good dialogue in terms of the state of play in terms of the access to capital and ESG. So that's going to drop and it's going to be awesome. But I wanted to talk about um, Jerome Powell's Fed minutes and I want to talk about China. I wanted to really this podcast thing about what is going on in the market right now and what is everyone asking about and what matters right now? Because I think we hear a lot about the big themes that are taking place and very few analysts or really good commentators do a good job in connecting all these dots. So the three main things I want to touch base on today are, you know, those themes, right? Is what happened to Jackson Hole? What did Jerome Powell actually speak about um, on Friday? And what did he say? What was the take home? I I did a, a LinkedIn video on that, which many of you probably saw. Um, and then really all this stuff with regards to China. How bad is it in China? We talked about that at length at the last episode. So if you haven't listened to that, that's great. We're going to talk about it more in this, ep- this episode. It's this never-ending story of bad news that coming out of China, partly because their data is so bad. And then I really want to talk about, so why does this matter? And that's really, you know, what are the contagion risks out of China? You know, why is this really bubbling up to the surface now? And this comes on the back of the fourth, uh, the fourth big visit we've had from this, uh, the Biden administration to China. So Gina Raimondo, um, who is the Secretary of Commerce, is the fourth official basically to go to China within the past couple of months alone. You, firstly, you had um, in June, you had the Secretary of you had Secretary of State Anthony Blinken. Then you had Janet Yellen, the Secretary of Treasury. That was really a a very very dovish sort of uh, uh, move by the you know a, a move by the Biden administration. Janet Yellen was was seen as really sort of kowtowing. And if you're looking at what how this is playing out in the Chinese media, just go on Global Times. That's the a big uh, Chinese propaganda newspaper in English, and you can see how the how this how this visit. Um, by the Secretary of Commerce is playing out. It, it's viewed, um, Bloomberg is touting this as a big deal, or they at least they were a couple days ago. Um, China's touting this as, as being a, a really great opportunity to reset the relationship and ties. Um, so, and the third person was the, sec- the, the special presidential envoy of climate, none other than John Kerry, which in all these visits, nothing has happened, absolutely nothing. Um, and so this visit is, uh, is is very interesting that this is the fourth visit we've had under this Biden administration in the span of a couple months, despite Biden saying on TV that China's economy is a ticking time bomb, calling Xi Jinping a dictator, which he is. Uh, the economy basically is a ticking time bomb, and but also having all these visits. So you have a, a, a lot of uh, a disconnect sort of within the Biden administration about what's taking place. And there could be a few different reasons for this, for sure. Um, but before I get into that, I, I need to timestamp this before I go on this long rant about uh, China, Biden administration, and all these topics we're going to get into. Um, time stamping this podcast, WTI is 8010. Um, Brent is 8435. So we've really seen oil prices 
hang in this $80 level. You know, we saw 79 at the end of last week and they're sort of range bound right now. You have a lot of, I listened to a, a lot of very interesting economics podcasts over the weekend um, talking about the range, you know, where prices were projected to go, go higher. And you still, you still do have a lot of banks and entities thinking that oil prices will go higher in the second half of the year. Uh, but there's more uncertainty in that. And they've definitely lowered their forecast from um, significantly high in nineties to much lower than that. Um, so, a lot of folks are saying WTI will go to 86. I still think that's uh, that's a little bit pricey um, given where we're at with the market. Um, Henry Hub is at 258. You're seeing Dutch TTF around 11 bucks. There is a um, a lot of I would say not misinformation, but not a lot of clarity exactly what's happening on Australia with this Woodside. They the the people within the Woodside LNG did not say that they're um, going to strike, but they said they will take, quote, take industrial action. And that could be a number of different things. So it could certainly impact um, LNG flows. So we'll see what happens, but that's impacting the market and it's certainly impacting traders and volatility. And then if you look at Dutch TDF future prices, you're seeing 16 bucks in December. And again, I tell folks, you know, put a, a grain of salt on those future prices because they're just, you know, today what my forward looking trading is on that. And then all of this also take a massive grain of salt is there's really thin trading volume. So, you know, I comment a lot about the work from home and the fiscal lags in the economy, but you truly right now, you do have a lot of people on vacation in the month of August. Um, I'm not one of them. I know you guys, a lot of you guys are not one of them either, but we have very thin trading volumes across the market, but particularly in crude oil and I think in commodities. Now, that being said, I've added copper prices to this list. It's at 380, um, so no big changes there. I still think that if you're looking at that copper chart and you're looking at what it was several years ago, a couple years ago versus where it is now, we've we've hit this tranche downward, and I do think that's telling us something about, especially about the Chinese economy. Um, and then you've got the 10-year-old at 420. Yields have been all over the map. And I didn't, I don't know if I quite explained this as, as properly as I wanted to in the last podcast episode, um, but, you know, when we're looking at the 10-year yield, and now we're looking at the 30-year mortgage, 30-year mortgage is at 7.29%. It's come down a smidgen. It was a 7.39% um, at the end of last week. Now, when we're looking at that, a lot of treasury yields are driven by what the Fed is doing, right? But it's also driven by with the health of the economy and things outside of what the Fed is saying and doing. And we have to, when we're talking about this China story, the reason I'm talking about, you know, spending a lot of time focusing on China, the US, the health of the consumer, the health of the economy, and oil, and understanding how it all fits in there is because. This is, we're teeing ourselves up for, yes, the recession hasn't happened, but it's, it's kicking down the road. And we have a lot of really poor economic indicators that are really coming to the fore right now. Um, so one of these is that when we're, the reason you're hearing so much about China right now is because it is slowing. And we're, you're seeing this just across the uh, across the board. So you have uh, billions of dollars, $10 billion that have pulled out an investment of, of just stocks um, as of late. And then you have all these concerns about rising Chinese tensions with the US, with all the sanctions we placed on them. And then you have the slowing economy. And so partly why the Biden administration is sending folks over there is probably try to gauge just what the hell is going on within the Chinese economy, because we know that their data isn't true. And we know that if their data is relatively poor, that it's actually worse than that. So what's going on under, underlying in the economy? And we see that through commodities data. We see that through, you know, if Germany's not doing well and Germany isn't doing well, their manufacturing sector is taking a big slump. If that's taking a slump, ours is starting to take a bit of a slump. If that's slumping, that means that Germany is not exporting as much to China. And so that tells you something about the Chinese economy. If if China is not exporting as much to us, which they're not, then that tells us something about our economy. And so this is all interrelated. But part of this is that, and someone commented on CNBC today, and this is about 
you know, part of our yield story. So our yield story is that, you know, we're having these higher treasury yields, which is really ratcheting up the cost of our debt. Um, you know, I mean, you can see this with their, if you're on a mortgage side, but you can see this, you got to think of in terms of how you pay your bills and how you think of your debt. Think of that in terms of our debt um, as a country. And I think we'll get into Bidenomics and why I think it's absolutely horrible. Um, but I think it's really, really serious to think about this in terms of this decoupling that we keep hearing about. And I'll get into all these Ds, deflation, decoupling, all these things that are, are not going well in the Chinese economy. But this decoupling side for the U.S. Treasury and China is that if China, and they are, that China is actively pulling out of U.S. Treasuries, and that means that you're going to be pushing those yields up higher. So that there are serious consequences to that. Um, and we're, we're witnessing and seeing them. But I think that that idea that, you know, yes, China has a lot of money in U.S. Treasuries, and they're not going to pull it overnight. But you are hearing increasing talk about this uh, this decoupling, and if even if we were on, um, it, it doesn't matter if they're thinking about war or anything like that. If they were just thinking about decoupling, they would be pulling out of U.S. Treasury. So that makes sense. And then you are hearing increasingly, and the reality of it versus actually doing it are, are two different things. But you're increasingly here of lots of decoupling out of the dollar in terms of when we're talking about oil and mon and trade. And we are seeing this. Uh, we're seeing this. Uh, China promotes this a lot um, with regards to their trade in oil, with regards to their trade with Saudi Arabia, with regards to their trade with Brazil. How much is be how much of this is being done in local Chinese currency or, or domestic currencies and not in the U.S. dollar? Okay, so that's a side note on treasuries, which we will definitely come back to when we're talking about the U.S. economy and the big moves and talking about the Fed. Um, so you've got you've got the uh, you've got the Biden administration sending the fourth. A person over, will this amount to anything? Probably not. Nothing necessarily substantial. I think the hope of the Biden administration is that this will tee up a meeting or a visit uh, between Xi Jinping um, and and uh, Joe Biden. However, um, that hasn't taken place, um, and we're not actually seeing we're not seeing China or anyone from China saying, "Hey, would like to come over to the U.S. and visit." So that doesn't actually look good. And I think we're on this. We are in a, a relatively negative trajectory. And you know, when I talk about China, I think people need to take it really seriously in terms of understanding, um, you know, where China's at, Chinese history, and really the the state of play we're at in now. Um, China is celebrating their Belt and Road Initiative, the ten year ten year anniversary of the Belt and Road Initiative, which is a little bit silly because it's been around way longer than 10 years, but Xi Jinping took credit for it and he's coined it. Um, so, but that program was before him under Hu Jintao that was taking place. Um, you just don't hear a lot about that. So that was taking place well before, but that 10th year anniversary is coming up now. And in terms of, you, you heard uh, probably last week about BRICS, uh, the BRICS summit that took place and how they added several countries within it. Now, I think a lot of people would say that's all talk and it's all fanfare. Not Clearly not as much came of that BRICS summit as I think China and Russia and everyone wanted it to. Um, but it is a big gang of folks. So it's Brazil, Russia, India, China. Now, that was coined several years ago when folks talk those com those countries were up and rising. They are not really up and rising. I mean, certainly Brazil, you know, has a lot of promise, um, but Russia obviously um, does not. Um, India has a lot, a lot of promise, probably more so than China in terms of an economic growth and demographic story. Um, and then, so we're thinking India, China, and then South Africa. And um, we, the BRICS summit did add more countries into it, and that's where it gets really interesting. Is they added uh, they added Egypt, they added Ethiopia. Uh, they added Argentina, and Argentina's interest. So, again, not great economies here. Iran, that's a biggie uh, in terms of the political side. Um, Saudi Arabia and the UAE. Now, the last three, I think, are the most interesting to me because that tells you that you've got you, what, what I've been trying to tell listeners and clients for a while is that you've got a lot of continuity, I think, going on between Russia, Saudi Arabia, Iran, 
I'm not saying obviously Saudi Arabia and Iran don't get along historically, but in terms of agreements and where they stand on all these issues, and I think of economic cooperation. So if you're adding Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE, I think that's a lot of, that's just signaling economic cooperation. Now, China was keen to tout the, um, the China has been keen to tout their relationship with Saudi Arabia, that how they brokered the rapprochement between Iran and Saudi Arabia, and they're bragging about that. But they're also bragging about their their relationship with Saudi Arabia and trading um, trading oil in local currency in in a Chinese renminbi in domestic currency as opposed to the dollar. And if you go to the Global Times website, one of the big articles, or and then you click this, this they're advertising the Belt and Road Initiative, the 10th year anniversary. And one of the big articles on that is quote strengthen China ties China Saudi ties quote strengthened. China-Saudi ties raise prospects for use of yuan, which is the local Chinese currency, in oil settlement. Um, China moves to help uh, help China-Saudi move helps hedge against uncertainties, weakness, U.S. dollar hegemony. Okay, so end quote. That this is telling us they, they basically say this, uh, and I'll read a first part of this paragraph. Um, second paragraph says, "quote The shift is deemed as necessary by observers from both countries in light of." end quote, increasing weaponization of dollar-denominated financial system, end quote. They, they said, hoping to move, the, to move to inject certainty into bilateral trade and dent, the, and dent the U.S. dollar's hegemony of the global petroleum market. So this is intentional, or at least this is how this is intentional. This is how the Global Times, which is the mouthpiece of the Communist Party, is advertising it. This is definitely intentional. Um, I actually don't think and haven't thought for years that the oil market and oil analysts have thought about this seriously enough in terms of when you're pulling, uh, when you're pulling, even if it's a, a, you know, a few thousand or a few million barrels a day, sorry, several million barrels a day out of the system in terms of, you know, it's not dominate, it's not on WTI, it's not dominated dollars. What does that do to WTI and Brent? And there are repercussions to that. But the fact that they're touting this and, you know, right now, Saudi crude into China has, has, been offset by very cheap Russian inborn crude. So there's a lot going on within with this relationship, um, but this is a long-term relationship. And it is important to think about and take into account in terms of, you know, Saudi Arabia and the UAE are pulling in a lot of investment and they're looking, you know, we have a lot of, you know, American companies, we have a lot of um, European companies that are investing heavily um, in the Middle East because they are the long-term play for oil and gas, and they're 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 in need of U.S. expertise, especially when it comes for uh, comes to unconventionals and fracking and all the service sector. They're absolutely in need of that, and they have the money, and they're investing in this in the long term. So they might talk about the energy transition, but we all know they're not really doing it, um, and everyone's buying from them. So what you're seeing from Total Energies, which was heavily on the green side, how heavily they've invested. I mean, they're investing $27 billion in Iraq. You're seeing them invest in all over the, all over the world. And so this is kind of case in point in terms of what I've been talking about, about the, that global bifurcation that's taking place around the world in terms of these countries are drilling and producing oil no matter what, whereas the West is just uh, talking about the energy transition and not really actualizing on it. Okay, so I want to move back to the China piece, um, move this back directly to China from the Middle East. But um, so everything you're pulling up, whether if you get the Bloomberg news feed and they give you a thing in the morning, they give you a thing in the afternoon over the weekend, there was the biggest things over the weekend and all last week were China and the U.S. It was all this talk about the China slowdown um, and the Fed and basically what was Jerome Powell, what was he going to say during the week? That gave that gave the market some stabilization after Jerome Powell spoke and basically they knew well, he didn't say anything new essentially. And I will get into that when I'm talking about the U.S. But in terms of the China side, 
the concerns are of the, the real concerns now are contagion, right? Is that we know that the Chinese economy is slowing. We know that there are serious issues within the Chinese economy. And what we're really, we don't know exactly what's going on, on the ground because I don't think we have great color. Um, but we are, what we're hearing out of the Chinese economy is that all this money being pulled out of Chinese stocks. Now people are starting to say, hey, maybe throw your money into Chinese stocks because that could be a trade. I, I want to remind listeners that Chinese companies that you invest in from a stock market perspective, they just did this on on Sunday over the weekend. The Chinese authorities um, cut the the fee to trade Chinese stocks. They reduced um, the amount of IPOs that will be coming onto the market in a, in a bid to sort of bolster the stock market and bring in money back into it. Now, most people don't invest in in Chinese stocks like they invest in U.S. stocks because they're not a store of value. That's that's why housing has had such the ramp up that it has is because housing was a was a wealth was viewed as a wealth asset and it kept going up in price and it was a store of value. So the housing side is really important because it's such a large chunk of the Chinese economy. And the problem is is that this crisis was going on multiple years now. And so we did have Evergrande. I don't know if you saw trading on it, but if, if you're looking at the bonds of these companies, that's different than the actual trading. But we did have Evergrande resume trading after after a couple of years. Um, but you you haven't seen the end of the faults and the end of the pain on that on that side. And so overwhelmingly, what you're hearing in China is that the consumer is spending, the consumer has went out very similar to the US in the post COVID, the consumer spending, the consumer doing stuff, but the consumer isn't spending in big ticket items, they're not buying housing. Um, and they're not spending in huge fashion, Be one, because employment's so high. And then if you're if you're listening into the uh, Chinese media podcasts, which are really, really interesting. Uh, the Beijing Hour is one of them. Um, and then the Chat Lounge is another one I listened to this weekend. And now the Chinese are spending, you know, some entities of China are spending this as, as a positive. This, you know, China slowing down is actually a good thing. This is because China wants, they want this, right? And they want, um, they want real, more resilient economic growth. Um, and that, that's something there was a conversation on the chat lounge, which is a, it's a so it's a, it's a Chinese media podcast. It's a government, it's a, all of it is run by the government and paid for by the government, but they bring in, uh, they bring in English speakers, they bring in Americans and they bring in Brits. So I'm, I'm probably one of the handful of people that listen to it, but it's, it was interesting because they were discussing the Chinese economy. Um, and it was, it wasn't all doom and gloom. They were painting this pretty rosy picture as to why this, you know, isn't so bad and that it's good to slow down. And, and what we're seeing in, in the trickiness with the market it is, the fear and the risk is the contagion side of it, right? Is that what I was talking about before with um, the German manufacturing sector um, and the and U.S. and the U.S. not buying stuff and Germany not being able to sell stuff. And when we're seeing it in U.S. economic data points and in Germany's data points, you know, this is a, it does prove, you know, how we still are trading a massive amount with China. And so this is interconnected. And what are the contagion risks? So the contagion risks are within Asia are significant. So that's why you're seeing hesitancy in the stock market of, you know, which companies are going to get hit within Asia. Um, and then it's within within the Chinese economy with this you know, this sentiment of maybe this is good. There's a wait and see approach of that, you know, if China wants to, they can just throw a bunch of money at it, increase the debt um, and just spend their way through this. They haven't done the helicopter money thing, which is basically just writing checks to people like we did in the US. I think the ramifications to that are really big. I mean, we're seeing them now. And if China did that, Yes, it would bolster the economy for sure, but we would have rampant inflation globally. Um, and I'm not sure that would necessarily, you know, just writing the Chinese consumer checks would, it might bolster spending, but is it going to drive, um, is it going to drive, you know, a housing wave? Um, probably not. So there's a, 
you know, even if uh, even if this was the U if the U.S. had this problem, it would be a mess. But China has this problem. China does not have institutions and the rule of law. So this is going to look a lot differently than people think. And it is messy. Um, and so the contagion risk and the fear and the, this continuing every time you're turning on the TV now, you're hearing about the Chinese economy and you're hearing about the slowdowns and the risks. Um, that's why is because it's just an ongoing saga that we're going to hear for a while. And I think I think the impact to crude oil prices is being muted a lot by this on the ongoing war in Ukraine that the folks really aren't talking about nearly as as much as they used to. Um, and so we have so many geop we have the geopolitical tensions and we have Saudi Arabia, who hasn't cut as much as people expected, but they did cut a million barrels a day in July. So there are nine million barrels a day of output as of July of 2023. So those cuts um, are, are helping bolster the market and are helping keep prices in this sort of $80 range for WTI and 80 plus ish range for for Brent. And, and just as a side note, I do think that is interesting in terms of where, you know, how well in many ways the OPEC and Saudi Arabia have managed this pretty well. I mean, it, luck is on their side as well in terms of we haven't seen massive volatility. We do have this really thin trading volume, I think, this summer. So we have to take that into account. But, you know, I've said this before and I say this a lot is that, you know, Saudi Arabia knew what was happening within China. Right. So they're, they're not stupid. They're cutting. They've been able to manage this pretty successfully. It doesn't usually work out successfully to just cut. Um, into a deteriorating market, but that's what they're doing. And they're trying to keep oil prices in this 80-ish range because that is where sort of their fiscal sweet spot is. And it is interesting that that is, um, it is putting upward pressure on on inflation, not just in, in the U.S., but globally. And I do think it's problematic in the U.S., especially as we, you know, we have refiners running basically flat out as much as they can. But if we don't have enough refineries running and we don't have enough diesel and gasoline, we're still going to have those pressure on prices. But we're in this sort of sweet spot of $80 oil. And if you listen to a lot of economists, you know, if oil prices were go to 90, 100 and gasoline prices go to $5 a barrel within this economy that we have today, which is not nearly as what it was a year ago, that would be problematic. So there's a lot of things in the, in the U.S. And, and globally that would be problematic. And I also think that, you know, while the Fed talked heavily about why Jerome Powell talked about, you know, all these strides the U.S. had made, I don't think we've seen those same strides globally. And I do think that on, the ongoing war in Ukraine and the, the impacts on food prices are still really intrinsic throughout the global economy. You see this and hear this when with regards to rice. Um, we, you know, we pay attention, I think, a little more to wheat because we talk about this with, with Russia and Ukraine. But if you're looking in Asia and you're looking at um, rice, those prices have really gone up and that's a major food and staple and grain items. So sit really serious and important to pay attention to is, is the food side and globally and what's happening and what any one of these things in terms of global global sphere, how it could be a tipping point and, and roll, uh, you know, countries or, or regions into recession or economic crises um, and then the, what that would mean for the global economy. So not not predicting that, but just saying, hey, it's it's not very good. And I there was uh, so last night there was a uh, a woman on on Bloomberg, and I'm going to get her name completely wrong. Um, but she wrote a book called Sovereign Funds, and this is on uh, it's on Chinese. I one of my many Chinese books uh, of the hundreds that I have in my den um, next to the room here, um, which will be in my collection, and I will be reading it. But she talked about she was on Bloomberg, and she's talking about China, and she's talking about the deteriorating economy within China, what's going on, and she talked about the four Ds. And I can actually, we can add more Ds to this because there's basically no D word in economics that's really good. Um, so she talks about debt. And again, this is all with regards to China. She talks about debt, demographics, decoupling, and demand. And I would add deflation because that's the other big one. Um, and then she gets into, de quote, deteriorating household balance sheets. So that's another D. And then another D, disposable, the decline 
<laughs> so another one, decline of the disposable household income and the decline of that growth. Um, so those are all really big. And something else you hear when you're, you're listening to economists, you're listening to people deep on China is profitability. Just It's not just, so this household income growth is a big deal, but that's because the businesses are, are not nearly as profitable. And so we have this profitability issue. That means people aren't hiring, people aren't paying as much, and then the consumer has less money to spend. So again, this doesn't start with the consumer. It starts on top and it's trickling down and that's what we're seeing. But with all these big Ds, right, deteriorating household balance sheet is a really serious thing. So um, it's something a little bit opposite and is opposite of what we see in the US. And that's because we have had um, we have had such massive fiscal lags and so much money pumped into the U.S. economy um, that we still have had this incredible consumer spending. And we will talk about that shortly. We talked about that a lot in the last podcast, but I'll get into that briefly um, in just a little bit when we're done with China. So she basically said, you know, the you know, there's a problem, and that's that the government, you know, needs to reduce the. Uh, government intervention within the economy, but that's not what the government's doing. That's not what the government's going to do. And I think that's the reality is that, you know, there's a lot of ways that economists and folks could look at this from a, a policy side and say, there are a lot of fixes we could do to the Chinese economy, but China is not going about it that way. And I think we have to be very, very careful about, you know, putting our, you know, putting on rational, um, you know, U.S. policy, Western policy making, you know, hat and thinking this is what we would do versus this is what China is doing and what they think is going on and how they want to control the economy um, and how they, they think that they can control this. And, and you know, to an extent, they've controlled it to this degree, um, but it's it's likely much, much worse than we're all thinking. And there are a lot of consequences that and oil does is a, is a huge component of some of those consequences. And, you know, there really isn't, unfortunately, there really is not, you know, for China, there's no precedent in terms of writing these checks and just simulating. And, and it's not clear that, you know, they would do that, but that's the sort of folk, the thing that when people say, quote, the bazooka that they're waiting for China to pull out, it, that would be sort of this, this needing to simulate household consumption. The way they would do that is through, um, is through, probably, again, not this direct payment, but it's reducing the, they have reduced the down payments that you would pay on a house. It was basically, they would take away all those regulations in terms of reducing that down payment on a first home, on a second home, um, and decreasing that, the the yield for, or the interest payment for the five-year, which is their basically set where their mortgages are at, which they have not done. They de decreased for the one-year, but not the five-year. And so, you know, the, the economy and the stock market and everyone is waiting for this big, you know, these big changes. But the problem is that uh, if they haven't done it today and not saying they can't do it, we see this, you see this historically within Chinese policymaking is it's erratic, um, just like zero COVID to non-zero COVID. It's extremely erratic. Um, it's very like, you know, set in stone until it's not, and then it changes. And um, it's a, it, that makes it really, really messy and very, very difficult. And then you add on top of that, that the that decoupling and one of those d's was decoupling of that's where there's concern there and i think part of this is that you know china is looking at this as a the chinese authorities um which i'm referencing the whole time when i say china china is looking at this as a way to in this decoupling as a way to help that decoupling right is the way to say okay we're going to be decoupling away from america and we're going to use this and and you know western counterparts and we're going to use this as an opportunity to become re more resilient internally um, and be less exposed to the whims of these western powers and I think so when when and the last thing I'll say on on this, and I'm sure I'll echo it when we're talking about the U.S. a little bit. But the last thing I'll say on China is that, um, you know, you, when we talk about I talked about the energy space last time and how important the energy space was in terms of these alternative investments. So we think about where China sees growth and opportunity um, thinking about, you know. 
thinking about where that next engine of growth is coming from. I mean, they have used the green side to offset. They've used, you know, they're trying to, you know, boost the service sector. And we still hear a lot of talk on the green side, uh, on the green you know, from the Belt and Road Initiative, what all the green stuff is. Uh, the China Africa podcast I listened to last night was talking about all the green investments from the Belt and Road Initiative. They were talking about this on the back of the, of the BRIC summit and how much China has invested in Africa in terms of the green stuff. I, I, I think it's important to think about how, how this is actually working. I and mean, we did just hear that also that Xi Jinping on his coming back after his trip from the BRICS summit, that he's actually going, he went to the province of Xinjiang and he's talking about probably stability and business and everything. I would expect that in all this deteriorating um, economic climate, and this is what we've seen for the last several years within China, is a lot of investment going to the province of Xinjiang. And that's, as I've said before, that's because you have cheap to forced labor in Xinjiang, um, which is very beneficial. You have no, you have no outlook, you know, no one can see what's going on in there. Um, and so China can really help bring Bring those costs down, and that helps them be extremely competitive globally. Not just that's for anything they're producing, um, whether that's solar panels, whether that's wind turbines, whether that's transmission equipment, whether that's rare earth metals that go into anything, whether that's uh, batteries, iPhones, you name it. Not just stuff in in the energy transition or green tech. That's anything that they're producing. When that you've got, when you're lowering that price of labor, that has a, a a very positive impact in terms of their ability to export it. So I would I would think that they would in, you would see more activity and things taking place in the provinces of Jean. Xinjiang, that's importance in the backdrop of why we saw so much craziness in the province of Xinjiang and so much control and enforcement and all the all the talk about the labor camps and, and the concentration camps before in the last several years is because they were gearing up to basically have you know this this province under con- control so they could do all this stuff. So I think it's probably beca- going to become increasingly important, especially as we have a deteriorating economy, um, for the production of all this stuff at a very, very cheap cost. So that's something to just keep watching. Okay, so Fed speech. That's what we're going to get into now is the Fed and a little bit on the U.S. economy. We talked about that at length in the last podcast, so we'll keep this short and sweet. Um, But Jerome Powell spoke on Friday, and I wanted to discuss that. I'm going to basically read the first part of the speech and the last part of the speech. But when I listened to it, um, I listened to it after the fact, and I put it on fast feed, so maybe I shouldn't have done that. Um, But my takeaway was that the tone, the actual words were actually pretty hawkish, but the tone was maybe a little more dovish. And actually, the interpretation by, you know, all the pundits and analysts essentially said the opposite. Um, and you actually, if you if you read the Barron's report, it said uh, it said the opposite as well. So Barron's put out a transcript, and at the top of it, quote, they said, Jackson Hole News, quote, Powell sounds a hawkish tone. Um, it says, so essentially, at the very beginning, I'm just going to read this out loud, is he reiterated... He reiterated the stance for the 2% inflation target. And I, I, I think that was important because you did have a lot of talk back and forth. You have a lot of commentators um, and analysts and TV pundits and everyone saying, is, is this an artificial target? Should we just raise the inflation, you know, that, that to inflation rate to 3% and therefore we give the Fed wiggle room and we don't have to tank the economy. And the, the, question and uncertainty with that is that we are seeing inflation be a little more stubborn in the U.S., um, and that's because they know that inflation could tick up because they're seeing such rampant and abundant spending. And we know with, you know, can, we know with credit card spending going up and we know with all the spending that we've seen over the summer um, and the airlines and traffic and travel and everything, that that's probably going to impact. And we know we also know um, oil prices. So we know that that may have an impact on inflation. And so where if they if the Fed raised the inflation target, they could basically allow that to go on, and they could not have to ra- continue to raise interest rates or 
maybe cut them sooner than than expected or or sooner and and help the economy and bolster the economy. But the problem is that means that inflation can get more entrenched and can go up. So interesting to me, and I think it was a very good thing for for Jerome Powell to do. And I give him a lot of crap, but I give credit where credit is due. And reiterating the two percent, I think, is a big deal because inflation expectations, when they become unanchored, they are really problematic. So I'm just going to read this to you in the beginning. I'll read you the beginning and the end. It's a very short speech. It's worth reading, um, if not listening to. It's only 15 minutes, so it's definitely worth going through. Um, but he says, quote, at last year's Jackson Hole Symposium, I delivered a brief direct message. My re- remarks this year will be a bit longer, but the message is the same. It is the Fed's job to bring inflation down to our 2% goal, and we will do so. We have tightened policy significantly over the past year. Although inflation has moved down from its peak, a welcome development, it remains too high. We are prepared to raise rates further if appropriate and intend to hold policy at a restrictive level until we are confident that inflation is moving sustainably toward our objective. Now, there's a lot of talk about what is this restrictive stance? How restrictive does it need to be? What is the neutral rate? And so really, if you're thinking about, you know, if I'll buy a house someday, well, next year, what are mortgage rates going to be? All this sort of matters to this. So this is where this Fed neutral rate and restrictive stance and what, you know, what are the what is the price of eggs going to be at the grocery store? All this really matters to this. So fast forwarding to the end. And before I say this fast forwarding to the end, he does talk about, and you had a lot of Fed officials and folks within Jackson Hole when they you saw their interviews, were talking about whether or not we are appropriately understanding the fiscal lag. So historically speaking, it could take up to 18 months for the rise in interest rates to trickle throughout the economy. Now folks are saying, well, maybe that's not the case. Maybe the rise in interest rates is already being felt more immediately because of the way the market works, because the way the stock market works, the way the the stock market already embeds, you know, rising rates, and we already see it in in mortgage rates and how quickly that happens. Um, That gets really hairy and really tricky because the Fed is not addressing the big, big fiscal lags and even saying it, which is the massive amount of mon- the fiscal stimulus that the government put in. And the fact that we have so much government spending right now, and even the, I mean, you even have Bloomberg commentating on this massive, massive government spending that we have in America and what that's sort of doing to create these distortions. So I'm just going to say, so he says that there's, he, he echoes this uncertainty in the market and in this uncertainty in the comment and specifically on, you know, these fiscal lags and whether or not they're already taking impact or whether or not we need to wait to see what they're doing. And that's where a lot of this uncertainty comes into play is that if you, I'm um, just leaving rates where they're at, this could continue to have a restrictive stance, which I think he thinks, or whether or not we actually need to raise rates because they're not having enough of a restrictive stance. So his conclusion is, quote, as is often the case, we are navigating by the stars under cloudy skies. In such circumstances, risk management considerations are critical. At upcoming meetings, we will assess our progress based on the totality of the data and the evolving outlook and risks. Based on this assessment, we will proceed carefully as we decide whether to tighten further or, instead, to hold the policy rate constant and await further data. Uh, Restoring price stability is essential to achieving both sides of our dual mandate. We need price stability to achieve a sustained period of strong labor market conditions that benefits all. We will keep at it until the job is done. So, you know, he basically, I mean, he's saying very seriously, they're not lowering rates tomorrow and they have to keep at this um, and that they're very data dependent. Now, this is different in terms of, so they're doing this almost on a monthly and, and if, a bi-monthly basis in terms of that data. Um, so there are concerns on that on that lagging side of if the data is lagging, are you doing this properly? You heard this from Christine Lagarde with the European Central Bank, same thing. 
is that they are she's concerned about inflation and they're they're doing this on a sort of monthly data basis. There is a lot of criticism that that's not the way to do this, but this is pretty evolving. And and I think about this a lot because I I really think about in terms of just think about your everyday life. How easy or not easy is to get anything done? When you go to the airport now at Denver International Airport, it is packed. Um, you have all, we're well above the Denver Business Journal had an article and chart in it. We are bell, well above 2019 levels for flying um, out of Denver International Airport. This used to be a lovely airport. It is now a zoo all the time. Um, you don't have enough air traffic control people, so you've had flights canceled. Um, you know, it's not, I mean, it's never been really fun to fly, but it's kind of, it's definitely a mess. Um, you see this when you're traveling, you see this when you're dining out. I definitely think we're seeing a little bit of softness on the dining out. I see it um, if you go out and maybe I tend to eat dinner a little later, but I, you don't see the restaurants quite as packed. And I think that's saying that might be saying something about the consumer. Um, but if your air conditioning breaks, if your anything breaks, trying to get help, trying to get people, the thing that you constantly hear is it's really hard to get people. And so we are, I think the, the fed is definitely looking at the employment side. That's something you heard a lot last week. That's something people are continue to talk about is how sticky the employment side is in the U S and the Goldilocks scenario or the soft landing, or we're not going to have a recession is the concept and ideas that unemployment has remained at we're 3.5% right now. Um, the problem is, is that there, so we have this very low unemployment and we have a pretty sticky employment situation and that we still don't have a lot of people going back to work. And, um, I, I think that, where I'm trying to bring this together with this fiscal lag side is I'm trying to tie a nice little bow on this and it's a little difficult to do, um, but I'm trying to bring this to where the U.S. spending is massive, right? U.S. government spending being really high is con contributing to these fiscal lags and contributing to people not working or not working as much or not having an incentive to work as much. And so this is where I get into the Bidenomics, which I think is a massive problem and is not healthy for the U.S. economy or businesses. I feel it in my business. This is, it's absolutely not healthy. It's hard. You, if you want to hire people, you can't. All expenses are up. Inflation's up. You name it. Taxes are up. It's, it's ridiculous. And so um, the other thing we'll, we'll talk about is the looming you know, government shutdown. Um, but Bloomberg has an article just quote titled, U.S. budget deficits are exploding like never before. The fact that Bloomberg even says that um, is important. So we have budget deficits exploding. And the reason, one of the reasons those treasury yields are going higher is because of the concerns about a government shutdown. Now, uh, Congress is out of session right now because of the summer recess. When they come back in session, they're going to have to deal with um, approving all the spending. The Biden administration has, a, a, there's so much spending that we've spent in Congress and the Biden administration, like drunken sailors, that it's still in the fiscal economy. And you heard, uh, if you were listening to the stock market today or a pundit, somebody, somebody mentioned there was a about a trillion dollars left in consumer, in the stimulus left. And that, yes, consumers are going to spend through that. Um, so about in a year from now that we'll all be gone and then we'll be in real trouble. But we already have over a trillion dollars in credit card debt, record credit card debt. And so, you know, when we talk about this Goldilocks scenario and this healthy consumer and people going to Beyonce concerts and the Barbie movie, that's just spending. That is. And the reason that I think that's so, so important is because if the economy was really healthy, you know, we wouldn't see we wouldn't uh, see that on credit cards, right? We wouldn't see a firm like buy now, pay later. We wouldn't see those entities doing well. And what we continue to hear is like Foot Locker just got absolutely crushed last week. And they were citing the same thing I've been citing before of, of the one, it's the consumers not spending. They have massive inventory and they're so they're making they're actually going to have big sales, but they also have rampant theft. 
So if I would tell people, you know, what what Biden economics looks like, it looks like massive government spending at extremely high interest rates and incentive for people not to work. And it also looks like a lot of theft and no one doing anything about it. So that is not healthy for the economy. That is not healthy for businesses. When Foot Locker is talking about theft, when Home Depot, when Target. So we have we have an issue with crime right now. We have an issue with um, massive government spending. And we have all these fiscal lags, which are so serious in terms of, you know, all these incentives for people just to not get back into the employment system. And so that's been this, and I, I, I'm trying to not be overly political here, but I think that lag is why we're not really seeing that, why we, why the Fed is having such a hard time of getting unemployment to tick up a little bit and getting inflation to come down more considerably. Um, and that's because you just haven't had the, you know, when, when people still have the ability to work from home and therefore they're taking a Monday off or a Friday off, and I'm not saying they're not working, but they're probably not working as much on that Monday or Friday, and they're traveling, that travel and all that stuff is creating to this inflation and that service sector that we didn't really we didn't have in 2019 we didn't have this flexibility on the work from home and now and now we have and we didn't have quite as much we didn't have the stimulus in the system um so there are massive lags and impacts from that that are that are continuing to weigh on the economy and will continue to weigh on it and that has helped uh, that has helped keep things afloat that has helped keep oil prices where they're at that's helped keep people driving and everything so I've, I've said it before and I will say it again the consumer is not what leads a recession but I think in this in this case the consumer slowdown could be what people think leads it or people think is the straw that tips the camel's back but in reality it's going to be stuff above it that it, that is weakening um and i will say i i want to talk a little bit about the housing side and i know i talked about it last week but in my neighborhood i'm walking around denver i walk the dog um every day and i see more and more houses listed for sale and so the there was a uh CEO of Picasso. Um, it, it, this is a very interesting company. He was. He's also, I think, believe on the board of Zillow. But he's a Zillow guy. You know, Z Zillow real estate. If you if you're ever looking at housing, um, so his the company is called Picasso, and Picasso is an entity where you can buy fractional shares in a house. So it's a, not like a timeshare, but you're buying a you're buying a chunk of a home. So you can go buy a, a home in Tahoe or a home in you know in the Alps or you know sorry not the Alps but a home in Vail wherever it is that you want a vacation home but you only buy a piece of it and it was really interesting this this uh, this economic thought process of how this works is that it one it works because a lot of people want access to a second home or want access to an expensive real estate market and investment but they can't find they can't actually find the homes because people aren't selling them so they've been able to get into this entity of where they're um, you know People go in and they they have their own mortgages. Um, those mortgages are not related to another one another. So if somebody bails on one mortgage, it doesn't impact the others. And then if somebody wants to sell their piece, the other people who are, are owning that space or have a mortgage on it get the ability to potentially buy a bigger stake or buy that out. So, um, and he, the guy from Picasso said this was going like gangbusters. It was doing extremely well, and that makes sense in this really tight you know, th this really tight um, market where nobody wants to sell their homes and everybody's got, you know, three, four, 5% interest rate mortgages and nobody's selling. Um, and he makes the comment that half as many homes were listed in half, homes many, half as many homes were listed this summer as um, than there were in the summer of tw in 2019 or half as many homes were listed in 2023 as there were in 2019. So that's your case in point, right? Now, I keep hearing this, except I'm walking my dog, and every day I see another house on the street that's listed. So there are a lot of homes that are listed in Denver. And I would say you're not seeing the price acceleration that you were, and you just can't. But these are all these are pretty expensive homes. I mean, these are $800 to $1 million homes, some well, well north of that. But lots are being listed, um, and I see them pop up all the time. And they're sitting there, and they're sitting there for a while. Some of them go 
through going to be closed, but then they don't close. And so I think one, um, I'm assuming that the transaction, the time it takes from, from, you know, listing to sale is taking longer. Um, and you hear that when you're talking to real estate folks, but the interest is, is just killer. And that is because I think, um, not that, you know, you hear a lot of, you hear a lot of people that are a little older than I am that talk about, you know, the seventies and the eighties and what interest rates were and why this is nothing in comparison to that. You know, we're nowhere near that. And back then, you know, what they paid for the mortgages. However, we have experienced a decade of, of, of very, very cheap money. And so now people are coming off of that. And that's really hard. That means that when you're thinking about auto loan or house, your interest is now more than the cost of that house. And that's, that's huge to just think conceptually. And that matters a lot when we think about government spending, that now we're spending more on our interest than our actual payments. And this government spending matters. It's what you're paying social security with. It's what you're paying your, um, it's what you're paying your military with. And excuse me, when we have those really high payments, the burden is massive. And that puts pressure on folks wanting to be in U.S. Treasuries. I'm not worried about, you know, folks being in U.S. Treasuries. Um, but it it puts this burden that we have not had in a long, long time on our system, on our government, um, and and uh, and actually on the people. And so that, and I'll get into the government shutdown and spending in just a second, but it's, it is all interrelated. So lastly, on the housing thing, I'll just say is that, you know, I, I always say this, but I think we're not thinking, we're not bringing this the analysts that I listen to and people are talking about housing, don't bring it all the way home of saying, what would it take to really move the needle on housing? And I think some of the data points that you're seeing is you, you are seeing construction, in the single family homes come down. And that is usually a, that's a leading indicator. Yes. You're seeing a lot of homes brought onto the market, but if you're looking at the charts um, on, on Fred data, you'll see that. And then you see the, you see the multifamily homes going up still. Um, and I think that's telling, that's definitely telling us something. So, I think there are a lot of folks that are hoping that, you know, we'll have these homes come on the market and that's going to depress prices. And therefore, and the Fed even mentions that, Jerome Powell mentions that in his minutes, that we'll see a drop in, um, in rental prices. And I don't think you're going to see a drop in rental prices. If you, have, if you have this high of interest rates on homes and we're not moving homes and things aren't transacting and people aren't taking out new mortgages and buying new homes, we're, we're in a very sticky pattern. And that puts pressure on rental prices to keep those up. And you're definitely seeing that across the board, no matter where you're at on trying, if you're trying to rent. So that gets to the point of what would have to give, what would have to break this? And I, that's job losses. So if somebody loses their job and they need to move, part of this is that, you know, nobody needs to move. You know, you can stay in your house even if you want to upgrade because you got that 3% mortgage or that 4% mortgage, but you might not be able to if you have to move for work. So I think that's where we're getting to this point. And I think that's, again, where that fiscal lag and how much stimulus is still in the system of that, okay, we have our home values. Those haven't come down. We have money in the stock market that hasn't tanked. You know, we have all these things. And you have interest rates. If you've got money in cash, you're drawing an interest on that now. So you have all these things here. And you've got $5 trillion, I just heard this number today, $5 trillion sitting in, money mark, in the money market right now. So that's massive. That's money that has been pulled out of the regional banks and, and put into money markets because that is drawing an interest rate. So lots and lots of stuff going on there. Now, if we switch gears, and I'll bring this home and close it with this to try to keep this, this podcast shorter than the last one. But if we bring this home and talk about uh, what the what are the looming issues? I listened to this great nerdy econ podcast over the weekend, and they were talking about uh, you know all kinds of data and stats. And um, one of them was talking about autos, and that we are now actually making more autos now um, in the U.S. and actually globally than we were in 2019, or we're back to 2019 levels. So some of this inflation should be coming down in that sector. But they were also talking about strikes. And they were talking about, so it was like, what are the tip, things that could tip the economy into recession? What are these things? And all of them, we were sort of in decent territory. So it was oil prices were okay right now, but if they went up, that would be a problem. 
labor was okay right now, but if you had more labor strikes, that would be a problem. Um, autos were one of those things where it was getting better. And then, uh, so in the labor strikes and the unions, I think this is really important. Um, and then government shutdown was another one. They didn't get into China and that issue and how the contagion of China, which I, I think is really important to think about what could happen in other economies. Um, but aside from that, they did talk about all these other things. And so they, one of these things is, is strikes. And I think um, if you look at Gover or Bloomberg put out an article today or their evening read, and they put in a chart of basically the openness to labor unions and how the uh, perception for the positiveness of labor unions has really gone up. So it's, it's the chart is support for unions growing in the U.S. And so this is where, you know, when, when consumers have inflation, this is the problem that the Fed's fighting, is when consumers have inflation, they're pushing their, their bosses for more, higher wages. And so unions, this chart, you can see that it, we had a trough in the mid, in basically around 2010, where labor unions went down. And that's because unemployment was up and labor unions, you, you, the, the employer did not, the employee did not have the power, the employer did. Um, and now it's the opposite. So the uh, support has gone up. That's not, that is really not good for business. Um, because that means that, you know, if you're demanding all these higher wages, the cost goes up and up and up. And that goes on to the businesses that in, eats into margins of the business that in, increase, uh, decrease the investability of those businesses. And inevitably, you know, if you're paying people more money, you're going to be able to hire less people. Um, and so th there are just massive consequences of that. And so when the Fed talks about inflation being entrenched and sticky inflation and people wanting higher wages, that's how it happens when you have wage price spirals and then you just have higher prices at the grocery store. So you're really not offsetting anything. So when that's under control, which we had in a previous government, and I, people talk about this of, you know, what happened, you know, not just a handful of years ago, we had low inflation and low unemployment. That's called the Phillips curve, where inflation and unemployment, basically, if you have high inflation, um, they sort of work together. We were at the place where Switzerland was, where when you study economics, you want to be Switzerland, where you have low inflation and low unemployment. And we had that, but it was a completely different government. And I think that's really important. It's something that you don't hear on Bloomberg and people don't want to talk about is that the Biden administration is not the Trump administration, not even close to the Obama administration or previous Republican administrations. This is a much more progressive administration with massive government spending and so and entitlement programs that have grown massively. And so when you have things in conjunction of higher spending, these fiscal lag, lots of spending into the system, less incentive, you know, le less incentives to work to some degree, and you have these uh, and then support for labor unions, you have a tendency to push on on the inflation side, which is just something that the Fed is going to continue to combat, which is going to be a problem. Okay, so that was one of the pieces in this in this podcast I listened to that said, hey, we're, you know, if the if we have massive labor strikes, that would be an issue. So um, this gets to the point of so we talk about labor strikes and, you know, we have them here and there. We're definitely having them on um, on the Hollywood side. I, I would love to cry river um, right now, but I'm just not. Um, so you do. We have striking that's taking place. We probably will have less, you know, original content and TV shows and stuff coming out because people are striking and they're not working because they want higher wages. We're certainly seeing this with UPS and other entities. So this is serious. Um, now, when this comes to when we think about strikes, the government shutdown is um, this isn't the same, but this is where so the government if government cannot if folks cannot agree in terms of increasing spending and getting the spending to appropriate levels, just like we had several months ago, what we had in 2011, if we have a temporary government shutdown, the impact of the economy can be significant. So that means that it, it really depends on how it shakes out in the wash and, and who gets paid and who doesn't get paid, but the implications could be really significant. And that is something that's pushing treasury yields up a little bit is the, is the uh, risk that we would have a government shutdown. Even that that's only a few weeks, that means that checks aren't going out. And I do think that is important when we think about an 
economy that has become far more reliant, um, or at least entities of the economy, and I say this is where we have really big cracks in the system, if you have big entitlement programs, which means there are folks that need, really do need food stamps and really need these programs, if you have that, but or you've had folks that are, that are on these programs, Social Security, you know, you name it, um, and then that gets shut down, the implications are pretty big for those folks not getting that. In addition to in addition to all that money that's still around there. So in addition to all that money that people got that they were still spending, that people are still cushioned, that they have jobs and they got stimulus money and they got checks and incentives and rebates for having children and everything. And that's still, some of that's still lagging within the system. And I think the, the implications for that are, are just something that's not being dissected well enough and appreciated by, um, it's, it's probably not being appreciated by the stock market, but it's probably not being appreciated in terms of real recession risk of that the this massive stimulus that we had and this, this continued fiscal school spending um, is what is the lags that we're seeing. It's pushing the can down the road in terms of that recession. And it's why this very, very highly anticipated recession has not taken place yet because it's being, um, it's being quelled by these checks that are being written. So with that, the implications to oil prices are significant. We have seen oil prices stay at this $80 level. Um, but when one of these shoes drop, we could see, you know, we see the, you know, the, uh, the wind go out of the sails. And right now we are seeing these thinly traded volumes. So we'll see when in September and October, when traders are back and we're seeing higher volumes on, on crude trading, what it actually looks like. But a lot of this is going to be dependent on China and the sentiment. And I will say that, you know, if you're looking at uh, OPEC or IEA, it is interesting because so much of this year has been driven, uh, so much of this year for oil demand has been driven, at least to, the, to their explanations, has been driven by China. So China rebounding and not too hard when you go from complete shutdown and zero COVID to reopening. So there is a lot of consumer, just like in the U.S., there's a lot of driving in China. There's a lot of consumer spending. So that's local, <clears throat> local demand. You're also hearing China say that they are potentially, because of this, uh, which I think is interesting in terms of how much they're demanding, that their refiners may be given larger quotas to export more product. Um, and that would help for the profitability of the refineries, but it also tells you that they don't need that product at home if that takes place. So that's just an interesting nugget on Chinese, on Chinese demand. And lastly, I will close this with the International Energy Agency because their August 11th oil market report, and I'm going to read from this, it said, um, and I say this because I think the International Energy Agency must have whiplash um, or personality disorder um, because what they talk about on electric vehicles and what they talk about on the energy transition front and clean energy technologies versus what they put out every month on oil just doesn't make, it, it just doesn't actually compute. And that's a big problem. So I will just, the first thing in the, in the monthly oil market report that most, that that some of us pay a lot of money for. It says, world oil demand is scaling record highs, boosted by strong summer air travel, increased oil use and power generation, and surging Chinese petrochemical activity. Global oil demand is set to expand by 2.2 million barrels a day to 102.2 million barrels a day in 2023, with China accounting for more than 70% of growth. With the post-pandemic rebound running out of steam and a, as lackluster economic conditions, lighter, tighter efficiency standards, and new electric vehicles weigh on use, growth is forecast to slow to 1 million barrels a day in 2024. So the massive growth, right, driven, driven by China, driven by that reopening. And overall, I mean, the fact that they're saying that uh, part of this growth is burning this stuff in, in 
and output. So if you have a hot summer, a hotter than expected summer um, in the Middle East, you're burning this for power generation. And again, we were burning, you know, crude oil for power generation um, most of last year throughout Europe because it was more expensive than gas. So huge, huge implications for this. Um, I always tell folks when I'm talking to them that I'm pretty, you know, when I'm pessimistic about, you know, talking about not, I'm not overly pessimistic about near-term fundamentals for crude oil. I am long-term very bullish. I'm not necessarily saying we're, we're just straight up and we're going to be 110 million barrels a day, but it's very, very hard to get rid of 103 million barrels that I demand, 104 million barrels that I demand. The fact that we've risen, um, this that demand is very, very entrenched. Um, so lots of factors here, a lot of complications. I really, really appreciate you guys listening. Uh, the last podcast has had exceptional reviews. That is me talking. Apologies for another 54 minutes, um, but uh, it, it's what people want to listen to, um, and people clearly have a lot of questions in the in the market, in the economy. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, next week, Dan Romito is going to be on the podcast with Pickering Energy Advisors. That is a fantastic conversation. Um, and get ready for uh, get ready for a great cadence. We're going to have Chris Atherton and several others on the podcast. So um, really looking forward to you guys. Talk to you soon. Bye.